0: Hi, I'm Bob Eckblad. Welcome to my podcast, Disciple. Word, Spirit, Justice, Witness. Today I want to follow Jesus and his disciples into Jerusalem, looking at Mark chapter 11, and with a special focus on verses 11 through 27. In this uh, story, there's just so many things going on. It starts out with Jesus, uh, his triumphal entry. Into Jerusalem, you know, where he comes in, um, and he, you know, he comes down on a colt, and um, you know, and people are spreading branches before him and saying, "Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father David. Hosanna in the highest." Then, beginning in verse eleven, we have this movement of Jesus into the into Jerusalem, and then he goes out in verse twelve, and in again at verse fifteen and then um, out again in verse 20 and then finally in again in verse 27. And the the center of this whole text is uh, Jesus inside the temple um, where he, you know, he chases out, he casts out um, those that are buying and selling in the temple and then that's followed by the chief priests and the scribes seeking to destroy him. And so really um, the chief priests and scribes' attempt to, or plan to destroy Jesus is right at the center of this text, and um, on either side of it we have the the on the one hand the cursing of the of the fig tree, and then um, on the other side of it Peter noting uh, that Jesus um, the fig tree that he cursed was withered, and then Jesus has a whole teaching on um, you know on forgiveness and on prayer, and what's amazing about this text is that we can see that. Um, that really Jesus is the only one who is effective at being able to actually curse something, which would mean um, end it. And I think this text um, really shows us um, how Jesus is really the only one who can destroy the principalities and the powers. It's not our role to do that, you know, and we're going to see that as we go through and we look at this text. Um, I'm going to be drawing from the writings of A monk named uh, Philemon of Gaza and uh, there's a book in French that is just the first it's like the first translation from the original Greek of a manuscript which is um, a commentary on the Gospel of Mark. He was a monk in this uh, monastery in Gaza 6th century and this is just brilliant uh, material that um, I'm going to be reading from a translation that's just a brand new translation that we're going to publish through the People's Seminary Press in this next year, uh, this commentary, and it's done by a friend of mine, Roger Wilkinson, in, uh, in Australia. So anyway, let's begin by just looking at Mark chapter 11, verse 11. And I encourage you to open your Bible, and we're going to be delving into this text in some detail. And uh, so let's begin, verse 11. Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple, and after looking around at everything, He left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. So I'm going to be reading from this commentary now, Philemon of Gaza. Um, And remember, this is right right when Jesus uh, came in in the the triumphal entry. Um, So I'm going to quote now. We know very well all that Jesus would do in Jerusalem, thanks to the buildup to it presented in this gospel. Jesus had himself announced to his disciples that he was going up to Jerusalem, there to die and also to rise. But what most concerned the disciples was that he was going there to die. They knew this, but the crowd knew nothing of it and saw his arrival quite differently, welcoming him as the Messiah, the Son of David, come to liberate his people from the dominion of Rome. So they acclaimed him as their deliverer. What we can note in the account here is that Jesus observed their welcome of him in profound silence. He rode on a donkey, the most humble of mounts. The whole world was celebrating him, but he said nothing. He was not there to deliver them from the Romans. His silence gives us the measure of the great gap in understanding between him and the crowd. And I think this um, this statement here by this, uh, you know, by Philemon, is is quite brilliant and relevant to our our time right now when people are wanting political solutions. You know, there's such a a political spirit that is out and about. Um, This next week, we're going to have elections in the United States, and there's just been a big election in Brazil and other countries um, in Israel. And, you know, right now is a time to think about how Jesus is distinctly a liberator as uh, the Messiah of uh, the Savior, the, the Christ. Um, so I'm going to keep keep going with this commentary. Once he had entered Jerusalem there was no speech and no hint of insurrection from Jesus. Instead, he went straight to the temple. No harangue, but complete silence. He took a long look around before leaving at the end of the day, always silent. This is truly most strange. What had he come to the temple for? Yes, he was at home in the temple, the house of his father. He had been there as a tiny child in the arms of his mother and had been received by the elderly Simeon, who had broken into a song of blessing to God. He had returned to converse with the teachers and many times for the great festivals. In his lengthy inspection, he would have recognized in silence every detail of the sacred place with all the feelings of a reunion. But this, today was not why he was there, as he well knew. How long did he stay there in silent observation before leaving? We don't know. We know only that he stayed there until evening. Had he come there solely to observe? Matthew and Luke situate the episode of Jesus chasing out the merchants from the temple at this point, but Mark says nothing of this. And no doubt, this is a more accurate picture. He does speak of this episode, but later. For him, Jesus' ascent to Jerusalem belonged to the way of the cross, and its goal was not the expulsion of the merchants, any more than it was the expulsion of the Romans. Jesus was in the temple for another reason, but one Mark finds so sorrowful that he prefers to leave it to us to understand, as we will as we meditate his text. He gives us the essence of it. And that is enough. Quote, it was already the evening, unquote. We know events in the temple during the evening because every evening followed the same pattern. It's for this that Jesus was there. And bringing this to mind is enough for both we and the disciples to receive light about his pathway to the cross. Every evening in the temple, a lamb was offered in sacrifice. We can see that from Exodus 29, 38. Jesus was there, taking his time to consider this sacrifice. He contemplated in silence the lamb, dying in silence. Also evoking Isaiah speaking of the servant of God as a lamb. Quote, he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter. Isaiah 53, 7. Jesus took his time to contemplate the evening sacrifice. He who himself offered his life for our well-being. The disciples were silent too. The understanding was coming to them as to us that Jesus would in turn offer himself a few days later. The text in Exodus relating to this offering provides us a detail which should draw our attention and could but have further deepened Jesus' silence. At the hour of the offering, we are told, God came into the temple to speak. The Exodus text gives us this promise from God. Quote, I will speak to you, Exodus twenty-nine forty-two. Jesus's Jesus' silence becomes wonderfully clear. He was quiet and he came into the temple, knowing that his father would come to join him and speak to him there. As it seems to me, this was Jesus' experience. There he was in silence, listening at this moment to his father speaking. This moment is not described because it is beyond description. This overwhelms me and plunges me into deep silence. I can only be still and contemplate. At this hour, when the Lamb was offered in sacrifice, the Father and the Son met together in the temple. The disciples said nothing. The crowd had died away, and we can only remain in contemplation as we await Jesus leaving the temple. His path to the cross had begun to unfold, before us and in the heart of his Father. Lord Jesus, perhaps you came into the temple to salute in your infinite goodness, the humble lamb offered to the Father, but men in their fragile love, um, our place is to salute you, to glorify you, to celebrate you, the Lamb of God. So much more humble, offered in our place, in your unfathomable love. I bow down before you and I worship you. You are my Lord and my God. So that's um, Philemon's commentary on just uh, kind of introducing this. And I want to now read this these next few verses um, from the text itself, Mark 11, 12 and following. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered into the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and to say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den? The chief priests and the scribes heard this, and they began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree with which you, which you cursed has withered. And Jesus, answered, answering them, said, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. They came again into Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes, and the elders came to him." And then that's followed by another dialogue that Jesus has with the scribes and Pharisees. But um, I end this uh, reading here because um, this forms an inclusion with uh, verse 11. So we have, you know, Jesus entering into Jerusalem, into the temple in verse 11, and then in verse 27, the same thing. They came again into Jerusalem, and, and he was walking in the temple. And then, um, and if you if you printed out this whole text, you you could you could see what I'm seeing here. This this structure that highlights that um, verse 18, where the chief priests and the scribes, uh, when they hear what Jesus says, you know about his the, the temple being a, called a house of prayer for all the nations, and uh, but you you guys have made it a robber's den. It's at that point that they seek how they're going to destroy Jesus. And um, in contrast, the people are astonished at his teaching. So now, um, how do we understand this curse of the fig tree? You know, one of the things that's quite interesting is that the curse of the fig tree, which Jesus doesn't actually say, I curse you, but just says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Um, And his disciples, they were listening to that. But then later, Peter, um, you know, when they come back the next day and they pass by the fig tree, um, and they see it completely, um, you know, like uh, withered all the way to its roots. Then Peter says, "Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered." So, so the it's Peter who identifies what Jesus had done as a curse. And anyway, and in between that is when we have, um, you know, the cleansing of the temple and uh, you know the casting out of the money changers and this, um, and the seats of those who are selling doves and and this confrontation. So. So really, um, it seems that the temple, I mean, that the cursing of the pig tree is really directly related to, you know, to the temple and is symbolic of the temple and um, Jesus's proclamations that, you know, that the temple would be, that whole temple system, that whole sacrificial system would be destroyed. And in fact, that's what Jesus says in much greater detail. Two chapters later in Mark chapter 13, where, um, you know, the, The disciples come to Jesus, teacher. Behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings! And Jesus said to him, "Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down." And uh, and later, you know, Jesus talks about when that's going to happen, what the signs of the of the times are, you know, how to interpret the signs of the times. But now, I'd like to to go and look at Philemon of Gaza's uh, commentary, and then make some commentaries of my own. So I quote, the curse Jesus pronounced cannot be passed over. At that moment, the disciples were listening. Verse 14. Then when the curse came to pass, it figures twice. Firstly, when Mark tells us that they saw the fig tree dried up from its roots. And then when Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is dried up. The curse has my attention too. Rabbi, says Peter. The title shows that Peter was speaking to a competent person not some half-wit who wanted to eat figs when it was not the season. He'd understood that, for Jesus, the fig tree represented something else, that there must be a picture here, with a curse not directly concerning the fig tree, but something else. Peter was therefore challenging Jesus, his rabbi, his master, to give him teaching which would explain the curse. Jesus doesn't respond directly, but begins to speak of faith, prayer, and forgiveness helping us understand our part when we have something against someone else. Quote, If you have anything against anyone, Jesus says, Here we might have cause, but Jesus then adds, Do not curse, but forgive. Clearly it's not our place to curse. And this is where Jesus stops. Peter doesn't question further to find out why it's all right for Jesus to curse, but not us. Not daring to, because he understood that this was an unhappy topic, that Jesus had something against someone or something, that he was hurt and this had impelled him to curse. Jesus said no more because he was pained, and Peter respected his silence and discreetly asked no more. The Holy Spirit then, through Mark, sheds light on what Jesus was experiencing. Curiously, the episode of the fig tree unfolds in two stages, before and after the entrance into the temple meaning that the fig tree represented the temple and what was going on there. The wound Jesus felt is clear. The merchants and money changers are a large part of it, but there's more because the curse was pronounced before the entrance into the temple rather than to the merchants. It therefore goes back to something else, to Jesus' previous experience in the temple, and so to the day before. Jesus had gone into the temple, but had said nothing. His silence hid his pain. He'd been present for the sa- evening sacrifice and offered as a result, because for him the sacrifices were dishonoring God. As God himself had clearly said, quote, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It was the absence of mercy that hurt God, the Father, as well as the Son. This is why Jesus here calls upon his disciples to forgive which is to say to exercise mercy, their forgiveness would be a balm to God's wounding, to the Father and the Son. But then why did Jesus curse the sacrifices instead of mercifully forgiving? Because cursing is more radical than forgiveness. If Jesus simply forgave the sacrifice on one day, this would not put an end to the sacrifices, and the sacrifices would continue reopening the wound In contrast, the curse stops them. That they may cease forever is the clear import of this curse. But then why may not we also curse those things that wound us in order to stop them? Well, because God, only God, knows properly how to curse. We have no idea how to curse in the way that only God and Jesus know. This is the truth. By his curse, Jesus put in motion the end of the sacrifices by taking upon himself what he was ending. He would offer himself in sacrifice. He would be the perpetual sacrificial lamb, not to be offered every day, but once for all, as it says in Hebrews seven twenty-seven. In such a way that God might be forever honored in offering the one and only sacrifice in total mercy. Jesus forgives all the sins of the world by taking them on himself. Jesus, the Lamb of God, thereby put an end to all sacrifices by his unique sacrifice. He curses, certainly, but by making himself a curse, as Paul says, Galatians 3.13. As for us, we would never do this. Jesus alone can curse perfectly and truthfully. Moreover, his curse is the last ever Since by making himself a curse, Jesus took every curse upon himself, bringing all cursing to a close. As for you, Jesus says to us, your place now is to exercise mercy, no longer cursing, but forgiving. Lord Jesus, as you contemplated the previous day, the sacrifice of a lamb, you were not so much contemplating the wounding to your father as you were absorbed in the thought of your sacrifice which would honor the Father. All right, so that's a powerful interpretation of what's happening here. And, um, you know, we can see then that in Jesus um, himself being the curse, um, in a way that highlights exactly how Jesus is going to be the curse, because verse 18 states um, in response to what Jesus says about um, after he chases the, you know, the money changers, the chief priests and the scribes heard this and they began seeking how to destroy him. So the chief priests, their role was to administer the sacrifices. And now uh, this has incited them, you know, to do away with Jesus, which actually is what does away with their whole uh, sacrificial system, the whole temple system. So I'm going to go on to the next verses um, reading from Philemon of Gaza. This text surprises us as we see the anger and violence that the Lord evinces. Now here he's talking about the chasing of the money changers. Elsewhere, he causes us to marvel at his gentleness and humility, his peace and love. Nevertheless, while we feel anger and violence here, we should note that the text doesn't mention either and doesn't use any synonyms for them. Anger and violence are there for sure, but in what is not said beyond words because the issue here is divine anger and violence. The holy anger and the holy violence, which are beyond our human anger and violence. To describe this inexpressible anger evinced by Jesus, Mark uses two strong verbal forms that we do well to examine. Jesus chases them, ekbalo. This is the verb used specifically for exorcisms. Jesus treats those who are buying and selling in the same way he treats unclean spirits. And while he does so with violence, certainly it is the divine violence which frees people from the evil spirits enslaving them. The verb, therefore, becomes very positive when it speaks of the saving work of God. Of course, the merchants and those buying were not unclean spirits, but they were inhabited by the spirit of mammon, to such a degree that they were, so to speak, assimilated to it. Jesus chased out the men, not so much as persons, but in their deep bond with an evil power, the power of money, which had established itself in the temple. He did so to set at liberty both the men and, temp- and the temple from the evil spirit that was in them. Jesus also overturned the tables and the chairs. The verb here is catastrefo and it's the main term used to express violent interventions from God. And once again, it's a verb that becomes very positive when accounting for the violence of God as he liberates and cleanses those who have become subject to the evil one. God overturned or overthrew the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in order to set them free from the evil spirit that dwelt there. Briefly stated, by chasing out and overturning, Jesus reveals here the liberating and cleansing work of God in a sanctuary invaded by mammon and his servants. He reveals the inexpressible divine anger which sets free and cleanses he acts positively in this, in the way only God can, can because God because he is God. In order to underline Jesus' divinity, Mark does not state his name or mention God. So, um, I'm going to keep going. In these two verbs, then, the inexpressible anger of God is apparent, an anger of altogether different quality to human quality. It is always aimed at good to free us from the powers of the evil one. It also expresses God's sorrow-filled reaction in his wounded love for people. As Abba Eusebius tells us, divine anger is a cry of pain from God, wounded in his love. The same anger filled Jesus here. His pain is also spoken. He recalls the words of God spoken by the prophets, firstly by Isaiah. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And then by Jeremiah but you have made it a den of thieves. Jesus was wounded in his love for God, whose desire for the temple was being trampled underfoot by the thieves. Mammon's enforcers, in his love for the temple which God himself called my house, now invaded by usurpers, in his love for the nations of the earth for whom God generously intended this place, in his love for prayer, for intimacy with God, now annulled by love of money, In his love for his own people, effectively dispossessed by this high place for for communion with their God, the wounding to Jesus was so painful that it overturned the tables and chairs, or that he overturned the tables and chairs, to make room for those who would wish to kneel or prostrate themselves before God. By chasing out the buyers and sellers, Jesus was chasing out those who were chasing the spirit of prayer away from the temple. He overturned the tables of those who had made themselves at home in the sanctuary, thereby distorting God's holy place by providing a place of prayer. He restored to the temple its true vocation and expelled the usurpers. In this way, Jesus cleansed the temple of all the impurities brought about by money. He came to cleanse rather than overthrow the temple, which remained the house of God. He cleansed it so as to preserve the life of prayer of the small and humble who love God, as we are then led to see in the poor widow who came to offer to God her two small coins, in the spirit not of mammon, but of adoration and humble love for God. That, that happens in the next chapter, 12, 41-44. to 44. Lord Jesus, my heart is likewise in your eyes a house of prayer. Please f- free me from everything in me that wounds you. Cleanse your dwelling place so that my prayers honor and glorify you. So that's Philemon of Gaza's commentary, which I find just so so beautiful, so moving. Interestingly, just in looking at this text, and you know um, what we see is there's a direct opposition between Jesus uh, going into the temple and driving out those who are buying and selling, and and then in the next section in verses 22 um, through 24 five, Jesus, um, you know, he's talking about having faith in God. And, um, he says in verse 24, therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you've received them and they will be granted to you. So he's talking about, and here he's outside, he's outside the temple, he's on the Mount of Olives and he's talking about prayer, uh, which, um, you know, he had just stated when he was inside the temple, that um, that my house should be called a house of prayer. Same same word, same language here. Um, um, and, um, and so now we, ha- we have Jesus saying, you know, when all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you've received them and they will be granted to you. And then he goes on, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. So Jesus here is really presenting his very other way um, of calling us not to retributive justice, not for as with you know eye for an eye or, or even violence or even cursing like like he did in this case, but to his way of humble um, you know humble nonviolent love and um, and marked by forgiveness. So he ends that section. But if you do not forgive, neither will your father who's in heaven forgive your transgressions. So now when we just think about what would this look like today, like, like the temple, it's no longer there. I mean, that was something that was just so obvious uh, being in Jerusalem last month. You know, just uh, from the Mount of Olives, looking over and seeing the, the temple mount, you know, with the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim, um, you know, mosque right there. But no Jerusalem temple, like Jesus said, not one stone will be left upon another. And that whole sacrificial system has been um, done away with ever since, um, you know. Jesus, uh, well, Jesus, pr- pr- you know, prophesied that, and then the Romans came and destroyed it. And, um, but what would be some of the sacrificial systems that continue to remain, which um, are, you know, could be called powers and principalities, um, which um, once again in First Corinthians chapter fifteen. We see that it's not human beings that destroy the principalities and powers. You know, we're not, it's not our role to destroy or to curse these powers. But, but it's, it's really Jesus himself, you know, where it says, you know, then comes the end. Um, Jesus says in, um, you know, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, then comes the end, verse 24, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until all of his enemies are under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. So so what would be some of these other systems that are, you know, that are like sacrificial systems that are under the curse um, and who, that are doomed to destruction? Well, today I was talking about this very text with a friend of mine, Jeff, who's in Watcom County Jail. And and we, what we came up with was, um, you know that that really the, the one of the major manifestations of of our, you know of our um, sacrificial system here in the United States would be our jail system, our courts, our prison system, and this is just so obvious. Um, it was just really obvious today. You know when I was um, talking with my friend, he just told me how he's been well, he's been there two years and he hasn't even gone to trial yet. And last week he was given an additional charge, which is called the Career Criminal Act, which adds 20 years to his sentence if he's convicted. And, um, you know, the the criminal justice system right now, the way it's set up is is that, um, you know, when a human being, when a person commits a crime, then they have a debt to pay to society, which is paid in a different in different ways. Like in the case of Jeff, he had eleven thousand dollars taken from him when he was arrested, plus probably eight thousand dollar car. Those were both taken, confiscated, um, sacrificed, so to speak. Um, and then he lost other money when he was arrested another time. And um, but but now he has um, he has time. You know they want to give him eighty months, and and that time is called um, a debt that has to be paid to society, uh, based on. Um, an idea that when we commit a crime against the laws of the land, then we have a debt uh, to pay to, you know, to make up for, you know, for that, for that crime, for that transgression. And our whole system is set up to be, um, to put people in a, in a debt, in a system of indebtedness. And, um, you know, like right away people, as soon as they're in jail, they have, uh, there's money that they owe and um and that just accumulates and if they want to receive calls or i mean call out they have to you know people have to put money on on their books in order for them to make calls if anybody wants to call in like video call they have to pay huge amounts of money really it's quite expensive um i'm paying i paid 25 into a system in order to talk to a brother of mine who's in jail in south carolina and um and right away, already $5 was taken off. And then every couple of minute call is $5. And, and, you know, all through the United States, prison systems are just making huge amounts of money from, you know, from just uh, requiring people, you know, to pay for phone calls, for commissary, you know, like if anyone wants any extra food or any, any extra just benefits while they're in prison, um, they have to come up with money. Which um, and it's it's super expensive, and so that's one of the systems of of sacrifice, a sacrificial system that is established as an institution in our country, and and people are, uh, you know, millions of people are oppressed by that system, and I believe that, and that's called, you know, being under the curse of the law, and and as we saw in Galatians chapter three, that Jesus. Um, He just, he overcomes the curse of Allah by becoming a curse himself, which is what this text uh, describes. So anyway, in conclusion, I just want to highlight um, just the beauty of this text where we see that Jesus himself is the one that, um, is the only one that can curse uh, these systems and in, in, in a way that would actually do away with them. This is not something that humans are, called to engage in you know but rather we are called to um you know to move in this opposite spirit um you know we we are being told that if we have that we're to have faith in god and that we can say to a mountain be taken up and cast into the sea and, and if we don't doubt in our heart but believe uh it'll be granted to to us and i mean that's a text that i'm not going to try to comment comment on that's that, that's a but leave for another podcast. But but rather what Jesus, you know, says is that, um, is that we need to forgive. You know, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. And, um, and so I think that's something that we need to press into in a serious way and, um, you know, learn how to you know, to practice this way of Jesus in our super um, polarized, you know, and increasingly violent um, national world, national scene and global scene. And, and these are texts that I believe are just worth deep contemplative, you know, prayerful study of. And so um, I'm just going to close with a prayer. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to really be able to learn to read your word in a more careful serious way and that you would um, open our eyes and open the eyes of our hearts to understanding the deeper meaning and that um, you would also just give us faith to be able to you know practice your um you know just prayer that is um, serious prayer that involves you know prayer asking believing receiving and And then also, you know, forgiving and refusing to, you know, to to engage in, in violence and in cursing. And we pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.